0: we pray, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you we can gather in your name. We pray as we come to this uh, passage about uh, some serious matters, about ways that we could be led astray, about lies that are told in your name. We pray that you might help us uh, to protect ourselves, to know what to look out for, and we pray that we might put our confidence where it rightly should be in the Lord Jesus. Amen. True story, uh, two older friends of mine, Dave and John, in 1977... They went to play a game of golf. I don't know if you like golf or not, but these guys are playing golf, and uh, Dave teed off with the best shot he's ever hit, right down the middle of the fairway, sailing along. It was glorious. It was straight, uh, and he, you know, he was cheering until a bird flew out of nowhere. And just as it got to the the sort of apex of its flight, this bird flew right across and Smack! Feathers everywhere, ball, bird, drop straight to the ground. They race down there to see if the ball's okay and and the bird. (laughs) Uh, And they find the bird and the bird's dead. To which John says to Dave with a dead straight face, Dave, I bet nothing like that's ever gone through its head before. (laughs) And in Colossians chapter 2, the point that Paul makes is that there are things that should never go through your head lies about God, distortions of the truth, false views of God and religion, which will rob the truth from you and leave you in a very desperate and dangerous position. Now, we've all heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's just not true. Uh, Sticks and stones and indeed flying golf balls may indeed break bones and kill you, but um, words can have even greater consequences. Uh, We might remember cruel words from family or uh, people at school that have scarred us deeply for lies. Bones heal, but sometimes words never do. But even worse, the lies about God, which can destroy you eternally. And the battle we all face when it comes to God is a battle for your mind. We got a hint of that fact last week in chapter two, in verse four, where Paul has said, uh, he said, "I tell you all this, everything he said about what a Christian is, and." and who Jesus is and what Christians are on about, I tell you all this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. But now as he gets into it, we get a full dose of what he means. Chapter 2 and verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. He's saying that there are arguments, there are ways of viewing God, there are ideas that will come and uh, words which can enslave you, which can capture you and take you a prisoner. That is to say, the truths that Paul's outlined in the first chapter about what a Christian is and who Jesus is are not just nice thoughts for the day. They are supreme truths which make an eternal difference in your standing with God, whether you're part of his kingdom or not and and where you will spend eternity. They're not a matter of opinion, they're a matter of fact. And yet the warning here is that alternatives and distortions will come thick and fast and they weigh well sound more interesting, more impressive, indeed more religious, than the simple message of Jesus that God has given us. Messages telling us that Jesus is not enough, that you need more or you need less. You need something to take you out of your mundane Christian existence and give you real spirituality, true spirituality, the world will keep coming back at you and pressurising you with any number of false teachings, false philosophies, false spirituality, saying Jesus isn't enough. And even within the church, there are many who claim the same thing. And in this passage, we find out just what these philosophies and distortions are that we're supposed to be watching out for. Ones I want to suggest as we go through have actually taken over a vast tracks of you know the church's life around the world, including the Anglican Church here in Australia, lies that have come. And so whether you came here today as a Christian, or whether you come as someone who's wondering about what Christianity is about, what we have here is one of the clearest distinctions you'll ever see between what it is that Jesus does offer and any and every false alternative. Well, he starts off with a reminder of the truth. And basically, Paul says that in Jesus Christ, God has done everything that was needed in order to save you and make you his. Uh, Let's just run through the logic. We're not going to read it out. Uh, Verse 9, he says, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That is, he's saying Jesus is fully God. He's God become a human being. He's come from heaven to us. Now you might remember the Christmas story uh, that uh, the angel comes and promises that Jesus, who's a baby at that point, is well, about to be born, is going to be given the title Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Does anyone remember? God with us. Emmanuel, God with us, and His acts and His teaching proved that's exactly who He was—fully God here on earth. And if you are His, Paul says, you lack nothing. He says, he's fully God and you have fullness in Christ. You've been given fullness in Christ. That is, there's nothing more that you need than him. If you are with Jesus, you haven't missed out on anything from God. And he gives a list of some of the things that have taken place if we are with Jesus. What are the transactions that have happened? uh, First verse 11, he says, in him we have been circumcised. And you might think, "Well, hang on. Get your mind out of the gutter, Paul. (laughs) But he explicitly says he's not talking about the circumcision that's done by the hands of men, you know, cutting off the foreskin. Uh, He says you don't have to have parts of your body removed or altered like in Judaism to be one of God's people. He's talking about the transformation that we've undergone, the inner change that Christ has made in us, which is not a superficial makeover. He's saying the old self is gone when we're with Jesus. We are a new creation. We've been given a new heart, a circumcision of the heart. We're spiritually altered, spiritually circumcised. And he says that's been done. He says, second, we've been raised from the dead. Eternal life is not just about heaven after we die. He says we've already started. He says we were dead in our sinfulness. We had rejected God. We were under God's wrath. But now as Christians, we've been made alive man alive with Jesus and he's not just talking about a new way of life but because Jesus himself truly and bodily conquered death, he gives eternal life, endless life, life which starts now and goes on into eternity with him in joy after this life. The TV ads, Dr Oz and all the others may tempt us with offers of the fountain of youth in their products but real and everlasting life is only found in Jesus who has conquered the grave. Third transaction, end of verse 13, he forgave us all our sins. Once upon a time, all our evil thoughts and actions, our selfishness, our greed, our ignorance of God, our ignoring of God, our indiscretions, our minor foibles, our major failings, they were all held against us, stored up for the day of judgement, but in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven everything. How does that work? Well, he forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He said, it's impossible to ever earn God's favour by doing stuff, that if you were to try and earn your way to heaven, you might you would find that God's standards are impossibly high. If I was to try and be good enough for God, try to do enough to earn my way into his good books, try and be religious enough to earn my way into his home, I'd have to face the fact that his standard isn't just, you know, mediocre, or even pretty good, or even very good. It's perfection. It's perfection. I'd have to have done every single thing that God ever commanded. And that's the written code, the regulations that stood opposed to us, God's righteous law that condemns us. And let's just do a test. Put up your hand if you've never told a lie. One person, there you go. And I think he just lied. I <laughs> should never trust any of you again in lies. <laughs> uh, well, there may be some of these that you haven't done, I don't know, but uh, put up your hand if you've never envied anyone. No one. You're kidding, right? Oh, no, Sorry. I forget I'm standing up here, so you're all envying me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, put up your hand if you've never hated anyone. Okay, that's fair enough. Put up your hand if you've never lusted after anyone. You know, thought, yeah. You know, or, you fart on the first two. (laughs) You wicked bunch. (laughs) And yet God's law says do not lie, do not envy, do not hate, do not lust and then anyone who does these things deserves death. And that's before we even get into things that we're supposed to do. Love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. You're kidding, right? Even as a Christian now, my heart, soul, mind and strength are in love with many things and it depends on the day which one is winning. Love my neighbour as my love myself. Yeah, right. (laughs) There's no way I do that or even want to do that because I'm a selfish man. And so this law... God's written code stands against me, it condemns me, it proves my guilt, it holds me accountable. It accuses me in the judgment of someone undeserving of anything from God's hand. And yet this is the very code that was cancelled when Jesus died on the cross for he died in my place to pay for my sin. He took the brunt of God's wrath and hatred of disobedience and all the ways I've, I've wantedly ignored and abandoned his ways. It's as if I was a bird flying innocently, carelessly, ignoring the fact that a golf ball was heading straight towards me and was going to kill me. But then another bird flew out from the bushes to stand in my way and it took the impact for, my, for the golf ball. It died instead of me. Jesus gave his life instead of mine. And it's not because I deserve anything, but because he loves me. And so I have nothing to fear. I am loved and I'm forgiven all my sins in him. That's the astonishing truth of Christianity that Jesus Christ has done everything needed to set you free. And because of that, he has triumphed over everything. For his benefit, he's now the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to be honoured and praised because of his sacrifice and his love. And for our benefit. And so... What more do you want, I'd put it to you, that when God can do no greater thing than that which he's already accomplished for us in his son on the cross? So that's a reminder of the truth he starts with. But what are these dangerous lies that he says are coming? What are the things Paul's talking about? And he says there are three big lies about being right with God, three aberrations of that message, three additions to Jesus. First big lie, that you need to do particular special religious observances or practice in order to be saved. See it in verse 16. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And I know already from this morning's service that as we go through this list of lies that I'm going to be touching on some sacred cows. (laughs) Okay? And you might be thinking, yeah, 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 as we go through this, and then you suddenly get to the one that's you, and you go, well, no, that's not right. (laughs) And we had audible voices this morning. (laughs) Anyway, throughout the history of the church, people have attempted to add things to Christianity, thinking that surely it cannot be enough that God saves you in Jesus alone. Surely you need to contribute something. The seeking of assurance in your penitence by the mindless repetition of prayers in order to achieve absolution. Showing you belong by putting ashes on your forehead during Lent. The Seventh Day Adventist insisting that the church must be on Saturday, otherwise it's not Christian and you're not a Christian. The Presbyterians, on the other hand, saying, no, church must be on Sunday or it's not Christian. You must not eat meat on Fridays. The religiosity, which says the divine, uh, you can meet the divine and sense the divine in man-made temples, which Gothic cathedrals are trying to be. You cannot have church just out in the open or in something because God wouldn't like it. The bowing and scraping, which unless you perform the actions properly, you won't have truly worshipped God right. As soon as you think there is a must-do religious thing that you need in order to impress God, you've moved away from Jesus. You've added something to Jesus. Uh, Let me put one to us specifically. Think about this. Do you have to have communion in order to be a Christian? I'm not asking whether communion is a good thing or whether it's in the Bible or not. Simply you: do you think if you were never to have communion again, then your standing with God would be jeopardised? If so, I'd suggest that you've already been taken captive by a false religion. Look at it again, verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you because of what Christ has done, having cancelled the written code and triumphed. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink Or, with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Religion will not save you. There may be helpful things you do in serving God, and church is certainly one of them. We gather together, encourage each other, brothers and sisters, and you know, but religion will not save you. Second big lie that you need an extraordinary spiritual experience to know that you belong to God or that he's currently happy with you, a mystical experience. Uh, Verse 18, he says, "'Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels "'disqualify you for the prize.' "'Such a person goes into great detail about what he is seeing. "'His unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions.' He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. And yet mysticism has been rife in the church right from the get-go and the growth in recent years in Christian mysticism is incredible. Have you experienced the second blessing from God? It's okay to start as a Christian trusting Jesus, but you need this extra thing that's going to come, this experience have you had the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Have you been to your local dream interpreter? There's a, another church around uh, which uh, employs a dream interpreter because God is telling you specific messages in your dreams. Uh, and he's piping direct information in your head that you need to know in order to live for him. And uh, you can consult the guy or you could buy books that tell you uh, what God is telling you uh, if you dream of chocolate cake. Uh, I read that entry in one of them the other day, and I can't quite remember, but I think it's bad. Um, something bad's going to happen if you dream of chocolate. Oh, I don't know. Um, there was a huge, yeah, it does end up on your hips. <laughs> dream chocolate cake, maybe dream hips. <laughs> but, uh, in the in the 90s, there was this huge thing that was that just went right around the world. Tarzay worship, which claims to put you in touch with God by what is really transcendental meditation, that you pick a word from the Bible that really impresses you and you chant it over and over again. Praise, 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 praise. Until you keep going, until you feel it. Something amazing happens in your heart being slain in the spirit where uh, you know, the preacher whacks you in the head and you fall over on your back, or even worse, if you start barking like a dog or laughing hysterically because God has infested you and invaded you. The testimonials on the back of books from well-respected authors parade the wisdom of it all. Uh, this is written on the back of the top-selling Christian book of the last few years. We'll set millions of people free to live the lives they were put on this planet to live, written by the author of the second biggest Christian book of recent years when only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will set people free to live for God. Even the whole thinking behind the worship movement is about mysticism and having a spiritual experience. Uh, Jeff Bullock, who was one of the most prolific worship songwriters in the late 80s and 90s, he was Darlene Cech's predecessor at Hillsong. His songs were sung by every church in the Western world. After his whole world fell apart in the mid-90s, he started reading his Bible. Oh, you think your worship... A songwriter should do that beforehand, but anyway. But he made a horrifying and wonderful discovery at the same time that we are saved by God's grace alone in Jesus. It was horrifying because he realised that he'd been leading churches up the garden path because he thought you could bring people into the very throne room of God on the back of quality, good, sensual music. That's what took people into God's kingdom and gave you a sense of the divine out of this mundane world. But he came to realise, Jesus' death alone brings you to the throne room of God. Music may be beautiful, singing great things to remind ourselves of great truths is important, but having an emotional high because you're caught up in music does not mean anything about your relationship with God. It just means you like the music that's going on. You see, all this kind of Christian mysticism, it's all a facade. It's an appearance of spiritual greatness. In reality, it's shallow, empty vanity. Someone who thinks they're really, really connected with God because of their spiritual experience, Paul says here they're actually disconnected because it's false humility. You're connected with God by trusting Jesus' word that his death's sufficient and his rising guarantees you life. religion. Mysticism, third big lie, asceticism. The idea that self-denial will make you more holy and bring you close to God. Denying yourself food, denying yourself comfort, giving up stuff and then you'll be, you'll be a better Christian. Verse 20, "'Since you died with Christ to the basic principle as well, "'why as though you still belong to it, "'do you submit to its rules? "'Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch.'" These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You can't get a much clearer statement on how foolish it is to think that God is going to be impressed by self-abuse. Why would God want you to beat yourself up? Yet asceticism is a lie that's been perpetuated down the ages as true religion. Self-flagellation in order to purge yourself of your sins. The endless books on how to get God's blessings by fasting that fill the Quran catalogue. Giving up food for land as if that will make you more holy. Taking vows of poverty. Going and living in a desert. Becoming a monk. How does Paul describe that stuff? He says it has the appearance of wisdom. It looks really, because you'd think God would be really, really impressed, wouldn't he? But it's an illusion. He says it's really self-imposed worship. It's false humility. It looks humble because you say, well, look, I'm in humble circumstances now. Look, God, what I've given up for you. But it's actually pride, denying grace by saying, I did something for you and you should honour me. It's harsh treatment of the body, which does nothing, absolutely nothing to change you. He says here it lacks any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That is, it doesn't change one thing about your sinful nature. See, how would an empty stomach stop you thinking evil thoughts? Might make you think more evil thoughts. Who do I need to rob to get my stomach full? (laughs) It, it, It can't change anything. It doesn't impress God and he says that's why all of these things are so damaging and destructive, why they're hollow and deceptive, why they lead to slavery and to destruction because they're all based on you, on what you do or what you don't do, what you experience or what you've given up for God and so in the end they deny the cross. They deny the power of the cross saying Jesus can't do enough. They deny the sufficiency of the cross because these kinds of false teachings try to add something to the cross of Christ that you need. Christ's death is not enough for you. They deny the love of the cross because they make God's love for you contingent on your performance. Paul's argument is that in Jesus Christ, Christians have much more than any of that. He says, You have everything. You have life. You have forgiveness. You have freedom. Do not be deceived, do not be taken captive by what is worldly thinking, false wisdom, because you need nothing more to make God love you. And that's why he started with verse 6 and 7, which I conveniently skipped. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So here's the secret. Here's how to protect yourself from lies and being persuaded by wrong teaching. Simple, really. The way you make sure no one drags you off in the false teaching is to stick with Jesus Christ. Just as you began as a Christian, so continue, says Paul, in Christ with Jesus as Lord. You see, Christianity doesn't start with Jesus as Lord and Saviour and then move on to an updated model, to a new and improved, bigger things, you know, with extra you know, attachments, (laughs) deeper and more profound mystery, more, more moving experiences. No, the way you continue, the way you grow, the way you make progress as a Christian is exactly the same way as you began with Jesus. The kind of thing that will provide ongoing nourishment for our faith is not a new revelation from God. It's not new knowledge or a new experience. It's the truth we first heard in the gospel, rooted in him, built up in him, strengthened in your trust of him, in his message of salvation. But then at the end of verse 7, Paul adds this little phrase that you could easily overlook, and overflowing with thankfulness. <laughs> it's sort of a, is that a throwaway line? I think it's actually key. It's such an important means of going on as Christians and resisting lies and false teaching. Overflowing with thankfulness it's vital for protecting us from the subtle suggestion that maybe we don't yet have all of God's blessings. Maybe we don't have the full riches of God's love and mercy. Maybe we need something more. See, if we're overflowing with thankfulness and rejoicing that we can't just keep it in, it just spills out. If we can't help but thank God for all that he's done, then when someone says you have to add something to the gospel, when someone tells us they can offer us the next level of Christian godliness or experience, then we could say, what else could I possibly need? What else could you possibly give me? What else could I possibly want? Now let me finish off the golf story I began with. John and Dave, 22 years later, after the day that Dave killed that bird, 1999. Dave and John played another game of golf. This time, John teed off. Whack! Perfect shot. Until 10 metres in front of his golf club, a rosella flew out of the bush and whack! Feathers everywhere. Ball drops. Bird drops. Bird's dead. Dave gets his revenge. He says to John, I bet nothing like that's ever gone through its head before. (laughs) (laughs) There are things that must never go through your head as a Christian about God. That it requires more religion, that you need to have a deep spiritual experience, that you need to beat yourself up as a Christian in order to make God love you, like you, accept you. Watch out for the lies that will come in the name of Jesus. Whether you came here as a Christian today or as someone who's trying to work out what it's all about, don't be deceived. You don't have to do anything to be right with God. The way to be right with God is to accept what Jesus has already done. He has died. He has risen. He has conquered. He alone grants life. Go to him. Thank God because we can't earn it. He's done everything that was needed in Jesus. Thank God for him and stick with him. He will never let you down. He will never let you down. Father, we thank you for this mercy that you've done everything. That we don't need to do anything to accept your, or to have your favour, to earn your in your goodness towards us. You, you've done it all. Help us to stick with Jesus, to trust that when he promises it's done, that it is done. And we pray that we'll never move from the hope held in the gospel. For those of us with questions, who are still wondering about whether it's true, we pray, please, that they might understand that Jesus is God and that's why his death can pay for us all. We thank you that we can't do anything. But we thank you that he has done everything. In his name we pray. Amen.